Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We have a very interesting podcast today because we're going to be traveling a little bit. We're going to be in Schoon Palace and then we're going to take you to uh, Devon. Yeah, we're not really. We're not actually going there. But <laughs> we, we did go to Schoon Palace. We did go to Schoon Palace. Uh, but uh, that was... In, the... in your mind, we're going to take you to these places. <laughs> the Scottish Game Fair, which we recorded uh, a few weeks back now, a really interesting debate on rewilding with a whole panel of people. Um, so we are not actually in the debate, although we were actually invited onto the panel, but we wanted to be able to record it. There, so, there uh, was some technical difficulties, which we'll go over very at the shortly. Time, yeah. At the time, we'll go over at the time the technical difficulties that were nothing to do with us at all. But tomorrow is a very special day. We are recording this on the 11th of August, and everybody knows what tomorrow is. Which is? The glorious 12th. That's what it's referred to. Opening day of the grouse season, which uh, where we are is celebrated all around. Yeah, we're surrounded by glens and and grouse shooting estates here. And some of you will have seen, um, one week ago now, there was about 300, 350-odd gamekeepers and supporters marched through the streets of Edsel to raise awareness for all of the work and interaction that estates have with local communities and the benefits that they have to local communities. I put up a picture on the podcast page two days ago now, and it's been seen, I think, by over 18,000 people. Wow. So. And there is a video out as well. If you want to check out the video for that, go to the Angus Glenn's Merlin Group Facebook page, and you'll be able to see that video. Or most most of the Merlin Group. Yeah, I think think they all shared it. Um, It's also on our Pace Productions channel as well. Yeah, it is. It is. We have a couple of topics that we're going to cover before we introduce you to Colin Arthurs. Um, we talked about the escaped links a few weeks back now. Yeah, we did actually on our podcast. on our interim podcast, and, and we we've got we've got an insider. We do. We got the man who was responsible for tracking him, and uh, and partly responsible for trapping him. Yep. And some interesting things coming from it, I think, as well. Yeah. well we, we can let's discuss put it this that. way. It'll be an inside insight into what went on that you have not heard. Yep. So we've got about 15-minute chat with them, I think. I'll try 30-minute chat, but yeah. Was it a 30-minute <laughs> yeah, chat? Yeah. <laughs> okay, 30-minute chat, and then we go to Schoon Palace. Before we do that, a uh, few things in the news. The obvious thing would be to do a lot of conversation about grouse right now. We are going to cover that in a completely separate podcast because it is too big to talk about in one podcast. There's far too much stuff that we need to cover. Uh, some and myths. we want to do it right. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to hopefully get Andrew Gilruth on from GWCT. Uh, some of you may have heard him debating this morning on the 11th. It was today, wasn't it? Was, it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, on the BBC, on the radio. And he's going to be on Country File. With uh, Mark Avery as well. Yeah. So which, definitely check out that one. Yeah, but We're uh, going to get him on. We, we are going to get him on and we'll post some questions to him. And if you didn't listen to the one on Radio 4, you get to hear uh, Dr. Mark Avery mm-hmm. talking. I have to say that uh, trying to look at it as, as objectively as possible, and there's very little of what Mark Avery says that I would agree with, if anything. Uh, but he definitely lost that argument. If you go and listen to the BBC, in fact, we'll stick the link in the description for this podcast. Yeah, we can do. Uh, go and listen to that. He failed miserably to get his point across, and uh, Andrew Gilruth, Gilruth did an excellent job. So yeah. we're going to get him on. Yeah, Mark, we're still waiting for the evidence. Yeah, we are. <laughs> um, you've got a story, Daryl. Um, coursing. Which one? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, on our home turf. So 
the today some gen well one gentleman there was actually three of them involved cost a gentleman no no no, he wasn't really uh sorry i mean uh scumbag would be the easiest uh but the thing is we got we got to these people are not part of our world at all he's been sentenced to almost a year in prison half a year in prison he'll probably get that reduced i imagine with good behavior for hair coursing they're from aberdeen there was three of them involved one went to prison the other two had a suspended sentence they're not allowed to keep dogs for a year and they were caught for two reasons one the dna evidence from their dogs was picked off the hairs that were left for dead uh also when they went to their houses they confiscated phones and laptops they had taken pictures of what they'd done idiots and thirdly uh people are fairly vigilant i would say around this area and they took the knob of the plate it was near kirimura near kirimura so they traveled from aberdeen to kirimura to go and do what is blatantly an illegal activity so mm. i mean if you if you're going to do the crime <laughs> yeah exactly <coughs> on expect ha- to do the time in happier news the olympics is on right now in fact it has s- severely curtailed uh, my productivity during the day because the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is go and watch what happened at night because of the time difference. And for me, most of that is actually swimming and we've had some tremendous, tremendous efforts in the swimming pool. But also in the world of shooting, we have two bronze medals so far uh, from Stephen Scott and Tim Neal. Um, so it's brilliant. And the big plus point of that is that it's been picked up by yeah, the media, by the media. It's in the newspapers, the BBC have picked it up. And it's just, okay, it's not hunting, but it is shooting and it's bringing it into that realms of acceptability within the public domain. So that's really great what, what they've achieved as a starting point, but also fantastic that it uh, gives shooting as a sport the opportunity to be in the media in a positive light. Yeah. Um, the last thing before we get to Colin Arthur's is Golden Eagles. Now, we think that the, the RSPB have probably been sitting on this article for a wee while. It just... It's a is little bit of a too, coincidence. It's too convenient that this was brought out the day before the 12th for the grouse shooting. So... <laughs> Take from that what you will, but I, I would be pretty confident they've been sitting on it for a while. Yep. Now, Byron has some stats and uh, figures here, which is quite interesting yeah, these have come from um, Jamie Stewart at the Scottish Countryside Alliance. Who um, you're about to hear on the, the indeed show. Indeed you are. He is on the panel along with uh, a, a couple of other guests and the director of, uh, of SACS, who is the sponsor of this podcast, of course. Uh, but the information that they pulled in response to this article from the RSPB was that of the eight tag, well, we all know from the article that there were eight tagged eagles which are now missing, and that is over a period of five, five years. The papers which they pulled studying raptors and eagles particularly suggested that there was only actually a 40% survival rate up to the age of four years old. So that means a 60% mortality. That's a really large percentage. And on top of that, because of course what we're talking about here is that they can't find the eagles anymore because they can't source the telemetry. There's almost a 50% failure rate on telemetry in the studies that have been done both papers that reference these, we will put in the description of the podcast so you, you can see that we're not making these numbers up. If they're missing eight eagles, they obviously tag more. It doesn't take a genius to work out the maths that obviously they're going to lose some either through natural mortality or the fact that the telemetry doesn't work anymore. So I think it's a little bit disingenuous. No, not a little bit. It's very disingenuous of the RSPB to suggest that just because these eagles uh, were tagged in areas where there's managed grass moles 
that this is as a result of persecution. And I was actually just on the phone prior to this podcast to Sachs in the office there, and they've been doing a little bit of digging. And they actually uh, found evidence in other research papers. Again, I'll put the, the website link up for you uh, in the description, is that a lot of these birds actually die of starvation. And the, the numbers of starvation cases as a re reason for death is actually very much underreported. Well, um, but so it's, it's, it's not in their benefit to report it. No. Because in the article, they straight away jump to persecution. That means that most of the headline articles are due to human interference. That's what the headline articles are. So they're steering you straight away towards an anti-shooting, anti-grouse. Uh, I mean, that's that's what it's uh, about. Yeah, no, uh, we're, we're not going to suggest that everybody is absolutely squeaky clean. We talked no, about no, it two we're weeks ago yeah, we talked about where it there was uh, an illegal trap and that shouldn't happen. But to immediately jump to that conclusion is just not fair, especially when uh, it is the case that the public, uh, the general public, put a lot of weight in what a big organization like the RSPB has to say. So when you see news reports like that and in the newspapers, it, it puts a completely uh, a, comp a spin on it which isn't fair and taints the whole industry. And on what basis? There's absolutely no evidence. There, it's complete speculation. Yeah, and the one small problem I have with it is that they're actually interfering with these birds at a very young age, putting these tags on them. And I think uh, I've got no evidence to back this up, but I think that the, surely there is there is some effect of interfering with young birds at a young age, putting a tracker on them, and then letting them go into the wild. It's, you know, surely that has some kind of effect of them. I think we have to ask uh, a few questions, not just with regard to tagging of birds, but wildlife monitoring in general. How much should we really be interfering? And I'd say probably the RSPB are, are the worst for this in particular because they monitor pretty much everything. It, they don't necessarily have great success results on their own reserves, but they're certainly uh, monitoring pretty much anything you can think of whether that be tagging or just visual monitoring. Should we be doing that all the time or should it be more of just of a, uh, a, a general management and a less interactive management with things like eagles and hen harriers? It's, uh, it's something which I would actually really like to, to have a, a further discussion on. It would be good to have someone on from the RSPB at some point. Um, we are continuing to try such things as well as get uh, the likes of uh, Packham and Avery on, which we have mentioned before, and who we have tried to contact through social media. But I'm sure one day we will be successful. I'm sure. I, I think other questions do have to be asked as well, just wrapping up this, is why aren't they working more closely with the grouse moors, where the golden eagles uh, evidently have their, their territories? If they actually work more closely with them, um, reports of sightings and, and so on, um, it would help everyone. But as we all know, the RSPB blatantly do not want to work with these uh, these no. people. And they've just pulled out of the Hen Harrier project. Yeah. So I so don't quite know what that says, but... Uh, well, I think it says a lot. I think, so. <laughs> I think, I think it says a lot, but uh, we, yeah, we, we, will, we will cover that again. But there was, there was plenty of press around them pulling out of that at the time. Now, competition winner. I guess everybody always wants to know who's won what. And there is another prize this week, and you'll have to listen to the end of the podcast to get to that. It's a good prize. Yep. So two weeks ago, we gave you the opportunity to win a Spyderco knife, yep. which um, I actually don't have here because it's back at my office. <laughs> uh, but yes, that's what you had the chance to win. And it was very simple. Uh, we told you a story about, um, well, Daryl told you the story about 
uh, a milk that he bought. Can you remember what the name? Arla. It was Arla milk or Arla something. Milk, where a certain percentage of that went straight back to farmers. So I think by the end it had 85,000 people reached. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it was crazy. All over a, a picture of uh, two, oh. li- two and a half liters of milk. Yeah. So the competition for two weeks ago was you had to send us a picture of you buying some sort of British farming produce. Or product. product, Yeah, British product. Yeah. Um, We had entrants, but the most impressive of which was not even in this country. It was uh, uh, an avid follower of ours. He he has followed us pretty much since the beginning, actually. He likes a lot of our pictures. He sends us a lot of comments. Um, but he's actually in Portugal, <laughs> and he managed to do it, not just once, So shame twice. on the people that didn't manage in this country because someone managed in Portugal. Yeah, so that is uh, you, Francisco. Francisco Sequira, I think. Apologies if I'm screwing up your surname, but you'll definitely know who you are. Uh, well done. You win the knife, so you know how to find us. Give a ping us a message. We'll get your address and stuff, and we'll send it out to you. I, I love um, Paul Wilkie, who actually won the, the bipod, actually shot us a message saying... How am I going to get some British produce? He works out in Saudi Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. Paul, but you did win two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, you won two weeks before. So I think it was fair he couldn't enter again. But yeah, he did. At least he took the time to send us a message. Yeah. Right, we're going to jump straight into the show. Yes, we are. Um, we're kicking off with Colin Artis talking about the, the links and his experience. Don't forget that this podcast is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Colin, thank you very much for joining us on the show. We've brought you on because you've been, uh, and the activities that you have been doing have been very much in the press in the last couple of weeks in conjunction with uh, some work with Scott Country, uh, a zoo, and a well-known lynx that escaped. Just tell me, how on earth did you end up getting roped into this? Good evening. Good evening, Byron. Um, I had a call from uh, Paul, Scott Country, uh, the Scott Country are renowned for their night vision kit, um, asking if I would uh, assist Dartmoor Zoo with the potential tracking uh, and location of Flavio. Uh, a uh, lynx that had escaped after uh, uh, the first night in its in its new den. <laughs> so they hadn't. Uh, they obviously hadn't. Actually, how did I? Don't even know <laughs> yeah, how I it don't actually know how escaped. It escaped. <laughs> I believe it dug its way out. Um, <laughs> Flavio is is a two year old um, uh, Carpathian lynx. Um, I even I had to do my my research on uh, on a particular non native species that I was going to start tracking in the fields, um, and he came from Kent. Uh, he was delivered uh, early in the evening. Uh, I can't sh- I'm not sure what the date was, but uh, later on in the evening, he was no longer there. He'd uh, broken out so by digging it, out of his pen, I think, is, is what was happening. So they had very short ownership over him. <laughs> uh, well, it's, yeah. <laughs> it was an unfortunate circumstance, yeah, I think, really, yeah. to be there honest with you. Um, then... The lynx, lynxes will uh, bury the food, hide their food, uh, what they capture, what they don't eat. Um, but obviously, he wasn't happy and wanted to uh, uh, widen his ground. <laughs> yeah, there must have been a few worried faces in the morning. But... Uh, well, there was a large search team that went out, including uh, Devon and Cornwall Police helicopter with their thermal imaging kit. They had a local lady um, called Sam Farlap who does uh, dog tracking. With uh, with bloodhounds, 
and uh, they were out, and they did pick up a few tracks and scents, but um, they sort of lost them really. But there was a large turnout to assist in the, the tracking and recapture, but uh, sadly to no avail. So, how long did all of that activity go on before you got involved with Scott Country? I'd say it probably went on for a good 14, 14 to 20 days. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd spent really four days assisting with the tracking before he was actually uh, recaptured. And talk me through that process a little bit. So, uh, all from, from the kit that you got from Scott Country to actually traveling down, uh, planning it, managing it, and then the whole process through the days that you were there until everyone knows now you know you finally captured it. Indeed. Well, um, I had to. Uh, I was reluctant initially to take this on, uh, simply because I've never really tracked a, a lynx uh, or a non-native species uh, in the UK. Um, and at the same time, I was very conscious that there was uh, commercially a lot to be, a lot of face to be lost for Scott Country and Dartmoor Zoo. Um, and there was also uh, a lot of pressure from the press to come along and joining with us uh, and tracking. Um, so a couple of things we had to be fairly conscious of was firstly the kit that we're using, which is the Pulsar uh, X50, uh, XQ50 and the HD50. Um, uh, and also the cost involved with, with those. Um, but also um, I'm from a hunting and uh, fishing and field sports background. So we had to be conscious of hunt saboteurs and animal rights and everybody else because people have been out with their dogs trying to track it down and and uh, hunt saboteurs were saying, you know, just leave it alone, let it be out there, it wants to be free, oh my God, they're going to shoot it. Uh, <laughs> and it was all a lot of negative press around it and, and some of the tabloids actually found it quite funny, um, the whole uh, fiasco of it really. But there was a serious point to this and that was if there was a non-native species that had escaped locally um, it was non-wild. Uh, it always had been hand-fed. Uh, it's very used to human contact. Um, and it's an environment that it was totally alien to an outside the zoo. So cars, cows, everything else like that was all alien to it. So I had to do some research, really, to uh, look at what I was going to be tracking. I had no idea, essentially, what its feed habitats were, what its um, living habitat was. Um, so I sat down and looked at a good OS map uh, and studied what its ground would be, which is really heavy undergrowth, trees, um, a rocky outcrops. Um, and I sort of had a, an idea in my head where I think he would have gone. Um, the zoo then sent me some images of where they had sightings some verified and some not verified. Um, so, And that coincided where I had an idea he would be. And that then I sort of went down before we had a press review uh, on a Sunday, and I went down on a Thursday and a Friday and a Saturday uh, and did some records uh, along with that. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, it was quite interesting, quite exciting. Uh, but when I got there, <clears throat> the terrain was just exactly what he wanted to be in, really, to be fair. In terms of actually capturing him in the end, what was your, your plan once you arrived and you realized, okay, 
obviously you can understand why he wants to be there and roughly where he's going to be. How did you go about actually catching him and how did you use the kit to, to help you do that? So, so the, what was really interesting with using the thermal kit was um, the local population of wildlife. Uh, and I say wildlife, that, that particular area where a Dartmoor Zoo is actually overflowing with roe deer, uh, sorry, with fallow deer. Um, there's an abundance of rabbits. Uh, there's a couple of local shoots down there. Uh, it's, there's a lot of sheep around, um, and there's lots of corbids. So um, what came quite apparent very early on, in fact, the first night, was that west of the zoo, uh, there was an absolute abundance. You could see deer and foxes. You know, I was calling foxes in um, within sort of 20 feet of me. I would have deer within sort of 30 feet of me. Um, there was corvids. There was an absolute abundance of rabbits. And then you go to the east side of the zoo, and it was like somebody just rubbed them all out. There was nothing there at all. Even during the day, you, there was, you would not get a huge number of corvids, which was unusual, really. Uh, considering that there's a lot of sheep around. So, and that was the area uh, where they've had a lot of sightings, um, some tracks, some physical sightings. Um, and then the following day, I went down and during, over the night, somebody had uh, stopped their car and taken a picture of him going through a hedge hmm. on the west side of the zoo no longer on the east side. So we had a feeling then that what he was actually trying to do was he was just beginning to get comfortable where he was. You know, he was reasonably sure of his surroundings and felt safe there, and he was just moving himself out across the terrain and just looking at the perimeter, really, and just exploring. At that time, we didn't really think he would be attempting to rewild himself. Um, he'd attempted on a couple of occasions to get meat from the traps um, from the outside. He hadn't actually gone inside of the traps. And at that time, there was no loss of livestock. Um, we couldn't... We found, we found a few corvids um, that had been caught... Um, and, and eaten, um, but that was really all we had to go on. And then on my second night, um, I parked the car up, I had my son with me, uh, and that particular part of the country, uh, on Dartmoor, is, is, or just on the edge of Dartmoor, is actually pitch black. Anybody who lives in Scotland will know what I mean, or, or, or Brecon Beacons, it's very dark. Um, and we parked the car up, we got it, Put the thermal imager on, um, and that time I was using the uh, HDS50, uh, the HD50S, um, with a with the pulsar recording device on it. Um, I set that up. I hadn't started recording because I was really pretty much anticipated what I would do: see him in the distance and start recording. And we go up this little old cart track, um, which really you, you can just about get a tractor up. Um, and Thomas had the on the floor pointing down so we could just gauge where we were going and uh, I put the thermal imager up to my eye and turned the corner and I walked straight into him. <laughs> he was bolt upright 
um, you could tell straight away that it was not a domestic cat simply by the size of his ears. And he stood there and he looked at us and uh, I then flap around trying to turn on the recording um, and to tell Thomas to turn the torch off and uh, and I looked back up again and he'd wandered off. So we walked around the corner and he was just sauntering away, walking up the lane, casual as, as Jack, really. Um, so I recorded him going up the lane um, and then he went around the corner out of sight again. So we, we ran up the lane a bit and, uh, and then he looked back at us and he stopped, had another look at us sideways on and uh, just turned around and walked up the lane and jumped up the hedge and was gone. So, so uh, close, so close, yeah. but so uh, far. And not very bothered with you, which is quite surprising. Uh, no, no, and I think, I think that's the thing, you know, um, you, you kind of, when you go out stalking, you're very conscious of your wind direction, you're very conscious of the noise that you're making, you're conscious that, you know, as soon as any, anything that's being predated by us sees us, it's gone. Uh, even a domestic cat, you see a domestic cat, you know, out at night, it, it, it crashes to the floor and it scats away with its tail out. This thing just walked up the lane as though it was just going for a casual Sunday afternoon stroll. Um, and that particular footage we had, uh, we didn't want to release because we were, because we knew that further up the lane there was a horse stables and they had two um, domestic cats that lived in the stables. Um, to the untrained eye uh, of thermal imaging or any night vision kit, you could almost say, well, that looks like a domestic cat. But actually, you know, when you sit down and you look closely at the dark areas of the bleed from the thermal image, essentially his back end had no tail coming down and sweeping out, the, the tip of the tail sweeping out and turning up. And there was nothing like that at all. All you had was a heat signature down the back, it stopped, and then you had thermal bleed, then it bled off into darkness. And there was this penny-shaped cut on its back end through the film, thermal image of that. You could think, actually, you know, that really is it. Mm. Um, but when he walked up the lane, lynxes have a, uh, a strange posture. Their rear end is higher than the front end. And uh, that was very distinct. Um, but we were just... What we didn't want to do because of the negativity with the press and everything else was release an image that say that could be ripped apart. Um, it's not like a picture. Um, yeah, sure. It's a, just a it's a it's a white blob with a lot of bleed around the edges, uh, and you kind of have to work it out what it is. Um, but yeah, we walked straight into it. <laughs> and and from there, you obviously had a better idea where it was. And then, did you rearrange where your traps were, or how? What was the the lead up to finally catching it that, that so, night? So, so what what uh, Mazu did uh, a chap called Andrew Goodman, um, who uh, is absolutely brilliant, really, to be honest with you. He uh, put out a little um, uh, wildlife cameras. Uh, up that particular lane, and we know he's been going up that lane because we've seen tracks there, people have sighted him there. Um, so we intensified our search area around that particular lane. Um, but there was a couple of sightings and a couple of track prints further west again, 
to the area where this particular picture was taken of him on the side of a road. Um, so we kind of just kept doing a perimeter and just working it in and working it in with the thermal imager. And with the thermal imager, you know, you do not have to be close to it at all. You could be a mile away, you could be one and a half miles away, and you can pick up a heat signature. And a heat signature of a fox, you can tell between that signature and a sheep and a horse and a rabbit and a deer, you know, you, you kind of start, your eye starts to retrain and what it's looking at. Um, and when we had spotted signatures that we were not quite sure what they were, we, we focused on that particular area. So um, another three o'clock in the morning, we returned home uh, after a sort of 140 mile round trip. Um, we had uh, the press come down, um, I think it was uh, on, a, on a Sunday, uh, and uh, the press included the Daily Mail and uh, some freelance journalists, journalists, along with the local BBC Spotlight. Um, we had interviews and uh, we had some stage-ups done, um, but the real work was actually, you know, let's get out and let's really try and track out where he, where he is now. Um, and what came out of that particular night was that the west, uh, the east side of the zoo, the wildlife suddenly returned, and we'd lost him altogether. Then um, we went to the west side, nothing. So we kind of like took two steps forward and we took this one big step back, where actually, you know, we'd lost all sense of where he was. Um, and then we'd left it for a week uh, because I had work commitments. I couldn't go down there. Um, and I then uh, sought some additional help from uh, a local keeper um, who I've known for many years. Uh, and uh, he is, you know, really good with his field skills uh, and just has a judge for things. So we turned up at the zoo and um, we were directed to the slaughterhouse uh, to find uh, Andrew Goodman skinning four sheep that had been attacked that morning or over the night. Um, and we weren't sure whether it was dogs, because it's, it's a renowned area for people going out lurching uh, uh, deer with their dogs, or whether uh, something else had killed it. Um, so once they'd skinned them uh, and we turned the, the skin inside out, you could actually see a definite claw marks or claw marks down the hind quarter of the, the sheep. Its esophagus had been torn out and eaten where it obviously killed it. Um, and uh, the, the rear end had been eaten out typically. Um, uh, what normally happens, uh, which would a fox would do. So we we knew that the sheep had been taken down. Um, we weren't entirely sure whether he'd fed off them or not. Uh, and that really was a game changer then because that changed the whole atmosphere uh, and, and mechanics of the whole stalking and, and retrapping and, and actually getting him. Because now he was beginning to play and rewild himself, there was a greater risk to livestock locally and, and the fear from the zoo and, and ourselves is that, you know, if he's not going to get caught soon, he's going to end up getting shot 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge concern. But the press have a lot to say about things like that as well. So, <laughs> so at at that point, obviously the the you had to raise your game because at the point where the uh, the sheep were killed, it wasn't actually that long after that you ended up catching the link, no, was it? It was um, within eight hours. Oh, uh, okay. It was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was kind of um, surreal. Then we turned up and uh, we looked at the sheep. Um, we got there to the zoo around about eight o'clock. And uh, I looked at my, my, my keeper friend um, and uh, we both looked at each other and thought, bugger, this is, this is really changing the whole thing altogether. Um, and there was a lot of pressure then. Um, so Andrew Goatman earlier in that day had uh, set some new traps. Um, and these traps are, they couldn't use a normal fox trap or anything like that because essentially you'd get halfway in and the trap would release and he'd be able to pull himself out. These traps were two foot across by five foot long. And uh, the release plate was um, a size of a 15-inch open laptop, if you know what I mean. If you fold the screen right back on the laptop, it's, it's the size of that. Um, so he'd place those strategically around the area where the sheep had been culled uh, or, or killed. Um, he removed the sheep baited the traps and uh, told us where they were. Uh, at the same time, he, he was putting some other traps around the area. So by the time we left the zoo, around about 9, 9.15, 9.30, um, we went to the area, to the perimeter of where he'd killed these sheep and just started working around the area with the thermal imagery. Um, and, uh, you know, the wall, all the wildlife was there. There's nothing to indicate that he was around there at all. But uh, so we pretty much tracked all the lanes, all the old lanes in the car. Uh, I mean, some of it is really dense woodland, heavy under undergrowth, um, and because of a particular area, uh, it's a mining area. And uh, a few years ago, the mine was reopened, and a lot of the houses local to that area. Uh, had a clause in their in their deeds that should the mine reopen, then uh, they would be repossessed and or bought at uh, a market rate or slightly above market rate, and the people, the owners, would be evicted. So there's a lot of houses there where essentially, you know, he could quite easily just lie up for them for the day because they sleep during the day, um, and just mooch around, you know. And so we mooched around with him, um, and we had one particular lane that we wanted to go up and just double check. So, and, and this is a lane that was um, west of, of where the sheep were killed. Um, and it's the only track you can theoretically go up because we had, the other thing we had to be conscious of was landowners were very twitchy about people going across their land at night through obviously illegal poaching and everything mm. else. So, um, so we wanted to be sure that we were where we could be legally without fear of any recumbents or, or being shot at or anything like that. So, uh, so we went uh, up this particular bridle path, um, reached the top of the bridle path, scattered around, nothing, but it was dead of any wildlife. So we thought, yeah, this could be, this could be worthwhile. So we reached the top of this particular path and walked out onto the hill and the wind was behind us going down towards where the trap was. So we, we knew the trap was on the hedge line somewhere, but we didn't know exactly where it was. 
so we get to the top of the hill by the Brecon, and we stood there for a while just watching a fireworks display, ironically, uh, in, in Plymouth, um, and just occasionally scanning. And it was that occasional scan that we picked him out, and he was just trotting from our right to our left, down the hill, uh, heading towards, at the time we didn't know what it was, but where the sheep had been killed, um, relaxed as anything, you know, not like cautious or anything. He knew exactly where he was going. Uh, that was his interest. Um, and he dropped down then out of sight on this hill. So we moved down further and picked him up again. And uh, at the bottom of this hill, along the hedge line, was an old cart track. And it's a deep, if you know Devon well, you'll get these old deep cart tracks that just come out of nowhere. Um, and he dropped out over one of those. And we, we knew there were deer around, and uh, we'd seen deer not too far away from us. Um, and at that point, we heard twang of what we thought was fence wire. Um, and we thought, that's a deer. So as he spooked the deer, as he chasing the deer, or we spooked the deer with the windage. So we waited. And then we heard this bang, 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 bang. And we thought, you know what? That could be him. And we just we were just about to start moving briskly, rather excitedly, uh, towards where the same was. And we actually we thought, do you know what? Is he trying to get the meat from the outside of the trap again? We had no idea whether he's in or out of the trap. So we just raised, moved up the hill a little bit more to get the windage away uh, and moved around. And then we heard the it was an almighty just crashing, crashing, crashing. And uh, we thought, you know what? It, whatever it is, is in the trap. And uh, we walked down towards the noise, flipped the lamp on, and guess what? He was in the trap. Job done. Absolutely job done. I was buzzing there. So uh, I tried to phone um, uh, the, the uh, operation manager for the zoo. Couldn't get a hold of him. Um, I got hold of Andrew Goatman, who um, said, you're joking, something like that. And I said, no, he's uh, he's in the trap. He said, right, we'll get a team up. So he was busy organising the team. I then text uh, Ben Mee, the owner of the zoo. I said, we've got him. And he replied back saying, what, you've seen him? I said, I phoned him back then. I said, no, Ben, he's in the trap. And uh, several, several expletives later, you're joking. Uh, Yes, no, he's in the trap. And, uh, and that was it. Trap. He was. Uh... For him then. Um, and uh, so, as soon as we'd finished talking and and turned the lamp off, he was quite chilled. Um, so, sort of 15 minutes later, we, we we turned the lamp on again and just checked him out, and he was all okay. Because you, you know, if something's in a cage, the claw size that he's got on his pads. You know, he could quite easily rip his claws out by just trying to get out. And we were just like, oh, God's sake, just get here as quick as you can before, you know, he either damages himself or he does actually get out of this trap. Um, And uh, out of the whole events over the the four or five days I was helping him out down there, the one thing that struck me was the size of him. How big? He is 
Just describe, yeah, describe the whole animal because we did a, a very long podcast on uh, the reintrodu- possible reintroduction of lynx. Mm. But just you've seen it, seen him firsthand. Just describe, describe the lynx for us. I could describe it as uh, he's the size of a labdor, a nice sized labdor. Um, he's as lean as a a good a good HBR, mm-hmm. uh, and he has the the build uh, of a cheetah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a high back end, a low front end. His head is the size of not far off the size of a cheetah, I would say. Um, and his ears are just designed to just pick up the slightest scent. And if you if if you you know when you start to research how the lynx can capture things, you know their pads are designed to carry their weight and spread their weight so they don't sink in the snow. Their ears are designed to listen through the snow, pick up the slightest noise, um, and they have a large nose uh, to pick up scent, and they have the physique not to run huge distances, but to be able to spread itself and get down low, uh, but also have that acceleration and the power they needed. You know, these sheep weren't, well, they, they were lambs, um, but they were, you know, not far off sheep size, a mm. good-sized lamb, uh, and he brought four down in the same night uh, without any issue without any problem at all. Was there any other evidence of was he eating anything else? Did you guys find no, any deer we, or anything? All we all we found was a few uh, a few magpies that had been eaten. Um, I, I was I was keen to find scats. I was really keen to find scats because then we could identify what he was eating. Um, but we never found any scats. Uh, to be fair, um, and. There was nothing else really to say that he was eating apart from the, the, the occasional attempt to, to to try and get the meat from out the traps without going into the traps and the, the dead corvid um, and essentially the sheep that you know he could quite easily pick up rabbits easily, but he's always been fed by hand, you know, so there is no natural instinct in him to go and kill something straight away. You know, mm. he might want to play with things, you know. Um, and apparently when he was in Kent, in his zoo in Kent, he'd trapped a pigeon and played with a pigeon. <laughs> so, you know, they, they have that instinct there. But, uh, you know, they have these huge ground like, designed for looking at night. And, you know, he obviously had fantastic eyesight um, because he evaded us for so long. 24 days, I think it was, he evaded the zoo's capture. So he, he was getting hungry by the end, so those natural yeah, instincts start to come honestly, through. You know, he hadn't lost any weight. He, he, when he arrived at the zoo, he was 20 kilos. Um, and when he was recaptured uh, and weighed again, he was still uh, 19.5, 19.8 kilos. So he hadn't lost any weight, and his condition looked really good. His coat looked really good. Um, so he was, he was probably still, eating something then. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so whether he was, you know, they, obviously they put out a few carcasses, uh, bits of carcasses um, strategically uh, placed in certain areas outside of public access, and yet none of those have been touched. Uh, and one of the things that I, when I was doing my research, I found was that actually, do you know what, 
they don't like tainted meat. So in Canada, where they hunt bobcats, um, the advice given by the, the, the game controllers out there is that if you're hunting bobcats and you do not want to trap or shoot uh, a lynx, because they look very similar, a lynx and a bobcat, uh, but if you don't want to trap a, a lynx, use tainted meat. Mm. Interesting. I didn't realise so, that there would be such a difference between the bobcat and the lynx, because yeah, oh, you're yeah, right, they, yeah. they do from, from a distance look like fairly similar animals. They do, but when you get up close, you can, you yeah, can, you can see yeah. that you know, genetically they are they look entirely different. Yeah. Um, what, what, I, what I found interesting, what you're saying, is that in the areas that you know him to be, everything else moved out. Oh, oh yeah, that was just the weirdest thing, really. You know, no rabbits. You know, it, we, we saw probably three or four rabbits over the four-night period that we were out, five-night period, um, in the area that he was first seen. And, uh, and it was just odd. And that gave us a lot of confidence, you know, there's something in there that nothing really likes, nothing seen before. Uh, and then you have all these stories of big cats, and, and I'm sure some may be true, some may be not, but uh, instinctively, you know, if there's something that wildlife doesn't like, it will not go back there. It, you know, it's fight or flight, isn't it? Yeah, they have that inbuilt instinct uh, towards yeah. predators, no matter what they are. I think, but yeah. just which b- b- puts a bigger target for the sheep on their back because they're yeah. the only ones that can't get out. <laughs> well, yeah. True, yeah. you know, they're sitting ducks. Really, you know, we call them field fleas down here. Yeah. So many of them. Um, but uh, for him to to be able to to actually change his whole game, he was obviously getting hungry. Mm. He obviously was looking at his particular area and his territory. Um, and he was looking to, I don't know, probably um, extend that. And the big concern we had was, you know, if he extends to the mall, which isn't that far, uh, would he survive? He may do, uh, he may not. Um, he doesn't have the same level of cover that he would like his open moorland there. You know, uh, he'd struggle to survive. But then again, if you went into the woodlands, you'd probably end up losing them all together. Yeah, um, and being able to trap him at that point would be really difficult because very close to where he was caught, across the road, is a solar farm, and below the solar farm is, is two, three hundred acres of woodland. Hmm. You, you struggle to find him then. But just uh, just to kind of finish up on this, uh, on a maybe slightly more amusing note, the media coverage of this was quite extensive all throughout the whole period and on yourself as well at the end. What was the kind of spectrum of media coverage that you, uh, that you read well, you afterwards? Well, you go from The Independent, which actually led some really good um, uh, journalism and some really fair reporting uh, to people like The Sun and The, and the Mirror, um, who... Uh, put me down as Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, covered in mud, uh, tracking the links. And, and you know, uh, we had an independent journalist, uh, a chap called um, Simon, and, uh, Simon Trump, and he was really level-headed. He just took things as it was, and he reported honestly. Um, and it arrived at the desk of the editors and uh, was mashed around. <laughs> and then in, in the end, the editors actually said, you know what, we're going to send our own reporters. Um, Daily Mail said uh, that I'd hunted humans or tracked humans. <laughs> so uh, it, it all kind of get, gets blown out of proportion. Um, 
the animal, uh, the hunt saboteurs in, in the southwest, you know, uh, said awful things really at the end of the day, um, where in fact actually what they failed to pick on. And Benny, who doesn't advocate hunting at all, um, is more to do with animal conservation. And, and I sat down and said, look, I said to him, you know, I'm known um, by hunt saboteurs and, and animal rights because of what I do you know, in field sports. I said, but, you know, we could either hide this and bury it or we can actually turn around and say, well, do you know what? There's two types of conservation. And sometimes those two types of conservation can come together to pull out a positive. And what we have here is Flavio, who escaped for 24 days um, and evaded every opportunity to, to recapture, was finally recaptured by, a, you know, the likes of the technologies were supplied by Scott Country, my field experience uh, and stalking experience, and their uh, understanding of the animal better than me uh, in, in how it's going to behave. Uh, and we all worked together to give a positive outcome. And, and at the end of the day, Flavio is now really, excuse the French, pissed off. <laughs> he's been recalled and recaptured, uh, but he is, uh, he's back where he should be. Uh, and being managed and monitored where it should be. Uh, and that was the positive outcome of, of the whole thing, really, regardless of what negative precedent might, might have been, is that the end game was successfully brought to bear. Yeah, no, it was great. I was really pleased. Uh, um, Paul at Scott Country actually sent me a message the night that the trap went off, so I, 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 had, a, I had a heads up on the, on the media yeah. release the, the day after, so... Uh, we, we knew that it was coming, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk us yeah. through that. It was uh, great, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy the story, and, 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 and the real no, story no, as well. Really good. And we can I, even... You know what? It was an experience that, you know, my son, who's 15, he's been stalking me with me since the age of five, and carried his first road deer on his back at the age of six for me, um, and granite his first deer at, at, at six, was there with me uh, all the time and you know it's, he's really had a part of history in his in his lifetime you know hopefully we won't get any more escapees <laughs> but uh you know the fact that we could all work together yeah uh, whatever our backgrounds whatever our beliefs that's uh, the key isn't which, it yeah yeah came 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 good in the end it was uh, really quite exciting and once we edit this and uh shove in a bit of soundtrack from predator then it'll sound a little bit better <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just that clicking noise. Yeah, yeah. Colin, thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure that we will actually end up speaking again at some point because uh, I have a feeling there will be future podcasts where we might have to get you on. Yeah, no, do, do. Uh, you know, it, this, this whole the whole experience is fantastic. And I think, you know, if I haven't had the opportunities that, you know, uh, Bass have given me to, to hunt in Scotland and, and stalk in Scotland, uh, and the people that have helped me along the way in, in, in all the time, the short time really, that I've been um, actively stalking. Um, and, you know, guys like yourself and Scott Country, you know, keen to help out, um, you know, it's, it's quite humbling, to be fair. That's great. Well, you have a good uh, rest of your day, and yeah. uh, we'll speak again soon. Yeah, I'm off to the, the local show now. Oh, which one's that? Oh, Captain. Ah, oh, brilliant. Captain show. Well, have a have a have a great show. And it's, it's a yeah. bit it's a bit wet here for a show. Yeah, a little, yeah. <laughs> oh, look! You see, sunny southwest. You've got the brunt of it up there. <laughs> but I, I'm with you because I remember sitting on Aaron 
when we had all the bad weather at Cockermouth and sat at the top of the, the hill on Aaron waiting for a deer to come out on a glade and I thought this is never going to happen. <laughs> but you wouldn't change it for the world. That's the <laughs> no, no, line, no, definitely. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Colin. <laughs> I do. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed learning all about the recapturing of the lynx down in Devon. There was a few things in there that I found particularly interesting. One was the fact that wherever the lynx was, wildlife moved out, which I found very interesting, but not surprising. No, you kind of you, you see a similar sort of thing with foxes, I no, suppose. No, but, but I, not surprising, but the they, fact they, were, they were using it, and it was obviously very evident that it was happening. And secondly, over the space of its 20-odd day period of being out, it managed to kill four sheep, which in our big, lengthy, two-and-a-half-hour-long podcast with uh, Dr. Paul O'Donoghue from the Lynx Trust said that they would not be taking many sheep at all. Obviously, in, uh, obviously, that there is this was um, an escapee from a zoo, so not a truly wild lynx. So you have to take that into account. But yeah, the point yeah. is they they do take. I was I was just going to say that actually, just yeah. to, to be as objective as possible about yeah, it. This was to... a hand. This was for hand-fed lynx. So it was very clear from uh, the story that uh, Colin was telling that it yeah. was slowly getting to grips with what being a wild lynx is all about. So that might have been part of it, easy prey, but. I feel sorry for it. <laughs> well, back you know, the zoo. I feel so sorry for it. I was actually thinking about this when we were getting to the end of that story because I, I, I'm not a massive fan of zoos. I have to say, I, I, I really, I don't even go into a zoo anymore because I find it too depressing for the to look at the animals that are in there. Uh, and yeah, it is kind of sad in a way um, that he had all this, this massive area, and he must, have just, he, he must have thought freedom. he was the man. Yeah, tasted, tasted freedom. freedom. Right, but anyway, is what it is. We're going to go on to our next bit. And I'm just going to cover our technical difficulties very quickly. And then Byron's going to tell us what actually went, went on. Now, we were there recording and everything was fine. Someone forgot to put fuel in the generator, which powered not only our microphones, but the microphones for the whole event. They went down. There was nothing we could do about it. So there is a, a quite a big chunk in the middle missing. But we're, trying to go, we're going to try and fill it in for you. Yes, we are. Now, don't worry, we don't just let you listen to blank space for 30 minutes, <laughs> which is about the, the period of time where uh, it went down. What you are missing out is basically the end of the presentation by uh, David Bell-Harry, which was, it was very interesting, and it was a discussion and presentation on rewilding and what that actually means. Uh, if you want to understand a little bit more and maybe try and fill in some of the blanks, because it does follow on quite well, we kind of cut from his unfinished presentation into uh, some debate with the panel who you will be introduced to at the start. Uh, but go and check out Rewilding Britain uh, website. Uh, yep. There's loads of information on there. That's who he's seconded to right now uh, from the government. Uh, and there's everything that he is talking about and presenting is pretty much in the website to a greater or lesser extent. So you can maybe have a, a browse of that and it'll fill in some blanks. But we're going to kick straight off the uh, actual... Debate was sponsored by Cheen and Tate. You will be introduced to Rory Kennedy, uh, who is a part partner of Cheen and Tate, and he is taking the actual debate. So 
you're not really going to hear from us very much, although what we're going to do is we will interject throughout this just with a, a few small comments and maybe sort of introduce you to the people who are actually talking because although if you were there, you'd be able to see who was talking and their name, it won't be that obvious while you're, you're listening here. So we'll help you along. But it's, it's a really interesting discussion and you hear from a variety of people across a variety of organizations and it's very rare that you have that spectrum in the same room debating the same topic. Well, we hope you enjoy, and we'll try and keep the flow going for you. Uh, on behalf of Trinitate, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for braving the uh, game fair traffic. There's one or two people that are still to arrive, so um, I'm sure they can just file past. Um, I want to introduce myself as well. I'm Rory Kennedy. I'm head of uh, rural at Sheen and Tate, um, an independent council practice. I'm sure most of you know us, uh, 130 years uh, old in the next couple of years. Um, the subject today is quite a contentious one, as you all know, and this discussion today has really come out of uh, actually a, a, an evening with Stuart Brooks and uh, the idea that rewilding has become a bit of a football for land reform. The two have been seen as um, mutually exclusive, which is not necessarily the case. And uh, indeed, uh, animal, animal rights themes being tied in with it. And on the other side as well, there is a lot of histrionics and uh, hysteria about, um, and hyperbole about uh, the threat of things like links. So just the last couple of weeks we had NFU suggesting that it was a threat, they were potentially a threat to ramblers. And close to home we've had claims of sea eagles eating children. So <laughs> what we're talking about today is really a bit more of a, a sort of a, 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 a bit more of a, a, a cooperative approach. We're going to look at the concept of rewilding and then we've got a panel here who quite an experienced panel across existing land use and other areas of, of rewilding and agriculture. And uh, they will challenge David on what he says, no doubt. Now, for, for brevity, I'm not going to give everyone a full introduction on the panel because we have got quite a large panel. But first of all, I'd like to thank David Bahari. Um, David is head of Rewilding Scotland and has a very varied background, including the likes of the Crofting Commission, the Deer Commission, um, and he is very much a participant in field sports himself. He is a stalker. Um, so I think we're going to get quite a balanced perspective from him. On the, the panel, we have Alex Stoddard, who is uh, the director of the Scottish Association for Country Sports, Scotland's largest uh, field sports organisation, um, who is himself a, a, a originally from a professional stalking background, um, but uh, I think particular focus on, on amenity of shooting for, um, for everyone. Jamie Stewart, who's director of Scottish Countryside Alliance, again, originally uh, a, a stalker, then went and studied uh, uh, environmental sciences at university, came back, ended up working for SNH. Um, they worked a legal project and uh, for RSPB on their goose project, their grey leg goose. Stuart Brooks is the CEO of John Muir Trust, and that's an organisation that actually does what it uh, what it promises on rewilding and actually runs large areas of Scotland for that purpose. And finally, on the panel, uh, Andrew Gilruth, who is Director of Communications for Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. We do have um, George Milne as well from the National Sheep Association, but he's running a bit late, so he will file on in behind. So just to go over some of the, the, the housekeeping for today, David will speak. We'll aim to wrap up by about quarter past 11. If anyone needs to sneak out earlier, there is... Uh, an exit there to the side. 
We are also recording this for Into the Wilderness podcast, uh, which is, uh, I, I would urge you all to check it out on uh, YouTube, their TV channel, and also on iTunes. Um, so be aware, don't say anything you don't want recorded, uh, but hopefully this will be an informal, uh, good discussion today. So without further ado, I would like to hand you over to David Bahari. Thank you, Rory. This is the first time I've ever spoken where somebody says you're being recorded, so don't say anything that you don't want to. I just almost feel like sitting down and going back up to Cannach. The There's quite a few things that I need to go through, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, at the end, there's been some sort of uh, questions or topics, there's a structure given. And uh, with respect to Rory, just sort of looking at them, it's all uh, it's quite combative, so it's uh, Grousemoor versus ecotourism, it's uh, about morality, it's about opportunity or threat, it's about saint or sinner. So the presentation, and the, the, you can frame this discussion if you like in a way that's black and white, you're for or against. I guess a key thing that I'm going to try and do is to, to try and get across to you that that's not the way I see the discussion on rewilding at all. <coughs> There's a couple of things that are very topical in the press today that I just like just useful for me to, to flag up. Um, so one, I, I guess, uh, well, we'll start with this one. So the Sands of Paul, you won't see that picture. But if, effectively, that's a trophy picture. Um, it's a trophy of uh, me and my two boys after a day in the hill um, before we start dragging. And I just, I just need you to understand that where I come from, I get the whole trophy thing. But today is also the anniversary of Cecil the Lion. So that blew up in the media because somebody took a photograph of themselves standing beside a lion. There's a backstory and so on, but it's the, the, the detail of the Cecil story is different to the way society reacted. Um, the other thing that's in the news today, listening to all the way coming down the road, is it's the anniversary of the Somme. And the point that the commentators are making is that there were huge losses on both sides. There was huge losses because they were forced into a situation of a polarised debate. The rights and wrongs in that um, history now looks at and decides. But the point is, is that I think in this room, we actually share far more in common. And that's what I'm going to try and take you to through this talk. <coughs> the final thing in terms of the, the, the news today was the stuff about the ozone layer. And later on, I'm going to make the point that one of the things that characterises the generation that I've come up through is that we are the first generation in the history of mankind that knows that we've got the ability to destroy the planet. So in 300 years, 400 years from now, news reports are going to be going, this is the centenary of something happening. And it's like, what did they do to address some of those changes that they knew were happening? And the ozone is a really good example. So in a sense, big ozone layer, global warming, something was done, and there's a positive response happening. So that's just one example. Um, before we go into detail, I'd just like to say a little bit about myself. So for those that um, don't know me, I am Dex Sutton. I was asked that this morning. Uh, I am on secondment from the Scottish Government for 12 months. So I left in November. I'm due to go back in November, um, depending on how this secondment works out. The other thing that's really important to be aware is that the rewilding debate is landowner-led. So the funding that has come into rewilding that pays for me is being paid for effectively by people who have landowning interests. Um, 
And I think with that, I'll start. So in November, I took on this job working for this charity. And I don't know how many, I don't know how clearly that's coming across, but it's Paddington Bear waving a Union Jack under the, the heading of Rewilding Britain with a wolf print. And uh, if I went out into some of the Highland communities and said, guys, this is what I represent, I would, um, without explanation, be lucky to get away um, with my life, I think. Now, there are a few reasons for that. First of all, there's a big misconception about the word re in the way that rewilding uses it. So re implies everybody says, we don't want to go backwards. And I couldn't agree more. It is about going forward. So the re part misrepresents what we're about. Then you've got the wild part that in some way, partly because of the wildland debate or the way it's been picked up, seems to imply that it's without people. And again, nothing could be further from the truth. So it's about going forward and it's about, with, about people. Then you've got the, the Britain thing. And I think the reality is that the political landscape at the moment in Scotland is that Britain doesn't sell that well. Um, so working for a charity that has quite an ambitious aim, it's quite a long-term objective, under the banner of rewilding Britain is a, it's a, big, it's a big ask. So what I'd appreciate is to, the next bit's quite challenging, so I'm just going to tell you what we're about. Um, chair of rewilding Britain is this guy, Sir, Sir Charlie Burrell, who owns a big estate down south. And Charlie's background is really interesting, and I'm going to say more about it, but working with Charlie... No, I'll tell, you about his, I'll tell you about his estate first and his life journey. He owned a, um, he inherited a family far farm, and it has over 100 years of industrial farming going on. When Charlie took it on, he had 20 years of running it to maximize farming profit, and he was getting more and more into debt. And then he went on a trip to um, Holland, and he met this guy called Van Zvira, um, which is the big rewilding project um, in Holland which I don't know if many of you have heard of it. I won't dwell on it too long. But it's in this area, and I can't speak Dutch, but it's sort of pronounced um, Oost van der Plazen. So it's an area of the polders that's been reclaimed, and it's totally managed now for natural processes in the absence of any predators. So you've got reintroduction of uh, semi-native horses or whatever, or deer, and they are being allowed to starve. And it's caused a massive public outcry in Holland, but it's still going on. And it is seen as being, it's quite an interesting experiment in a sense, because it's no different to ecosystems elsewhere in the world where large ungulates, their populations rise, and then they, they get overpopulated and there is starvation. The question is, has society moved on too much to allow that to happen? So anyway, working with Charlie and the other trustees, what, this is just to summarize that Charlie's estate down south. We came up with this idea. Um, and the idea was that really what Scotland needs is some keystone species, some large carnivores brought back in to help us control the deer population. So wolves and lynx are, are some, but really exciting is bears. So what we're doing, we're sort of thinking we're putting together a catalogue of the different types of bears that you could get in Scotland. And that's really exciting because here you could have these black lads with the white rings around their necks, or you could have, I don't know if you can see these, but these are brown bears. Um, they're quite cute as well. Or we could have global climatic change. You could have even polar bears. And if you're wanting a bit more diversity, we could even have black and white bears. And we'd have them in Scotland, and that will really help. Help with ecotourism, help control some uh, predator 
sorry, help control populations of ungulates, and so on. So we're putting together this catalogue and we're going around some of the really wealthy landowners and saying, guys, we can help you achieve this objective. You just need to give us a heads up. What do you want? You want a big dog or do you want a bear? And if you want a bear, what colour of bear do you want? The, um, and I guess what I'm saying is that that is the common perception of the way that the rewilding debate has gone to date. And I guess you're looking at me and you're saying, this is what you're thinking, is Dave, look, we're really trying to see this from your perspective. But if you are thinking that that's going to work in Scotland, you know, you're just, you're not on the same planet that we're on. I get that, guys. Rewilding is not about the introduction of large carnivores into Scotland. That's not its primary purpose. That's part of a debate that will happen through generations long after we're gone. But it's not what rewilding in Scotland's about. The, and the reason it's not about that is that, I don't know how many of you can see that, but there's a really nice picture there of an adult brown bear. And if you're going to introduce animals like that into Scotland, you're talking about really serious change, not in terms of just the ecosystem, but in terms of about how society lives and how we manage the land and so on. These are massive changes, way bigger than anything to do with Brexit. I mean, that, honestly, it's a, that's a huge discussion. And whether it ever happens or not, to be honest, I, I, my life's too short to be engaged in that debate. But I'm not saying it won't happen in the future or that that debate won't, you know, isn't for some other people to take forward. Okay, so what's it really about? Well, for me, um, I'll just put these all up at once. I think these are the, the five um, things that are absolutely key. It's about change, and land use is about change. I'll say more about that. It's about respect. So for everybody in this room, Alex, you and I had a conversation about um, altercations that we've had in the past and different roles. At no time in those, in those positions was there an absence of respect. And I hold that for every land use in Scotland today. Everybody who's involved is that, you know, don't get me wrong, I might suggest that there's a, an area, a discussion to have that's different to what we're used to. That doesn't imply a lack of respect. The next thing is that's really key in this whole thing is dig dignity. So I know lots of people who are second, third generation involved in a type of land use. And what's really important is that any change that takes place respects the dignity of those people and how they move forward or what their children do in the future. And if you get that wrong, then to be honest, in terms of, you know, there's a question that we're going to debate later, the morality. The morality of disrespecting people or people at their later stages in life losing their dignity is appalling. So we're not about that. The next thing is it's about time. So land use change takes place over time and you in this room and other people have an opportunity to influence the direction that that land use chase change goes in as you'll hear more about rewilding is about presenting a scenario and saying you might want to have a look at this option because it might actually deliver all your benefits and if i can just stop for a second what like you to do just now as I'm speaking is to be thinking about the reasons why people own land. And that's, I've got some ideas myself, I'm going to put them up on a slide later. But my belief is that in certain parts of Scotland, for any reason that you can give me as to why people own land, rewilding offers a viable alternative that might measure or, or compare very favourably with whatever criteria you've got. So I'm going to get to that at the end, but you can start thinking about it just now. Uh,
and there the fuel ran out in the generator, as we said earlier, <laughs> uh, which is really unfortunate. Because Nobody seemed to know what was actually going on. <laughs> it took quite a while to work out. I was running around in the background, and there was two guys and engineers peering over the generator, thinking something had broken. Meanwhile, all they had to do was put uh, put some diesel in it, uh, which is annoying because we were really getting into the swing of things there. I think it. It's not going to matter too much. Uh, Jamie Stewart from the Scottish Countryside Alliance picks up here and we really get into the thrust of debate. And there's a lot of to and fro where they raise questions from his presentation. And then David Belharry has the opportunity to sort of counter those. Um, so I don't think it's going to matter too much. The one thing I would say that is probably missing is that during um, his conversation on rewilding, he does br bring up... Um, part of the, uh, a debate with regard to trophy hunting and he connects that to africa and although i i have to say that i would of all the rewilding type discussions and debates i would say that the one with david belharry was probably the most level-headed um, debate that i've probably heard his conversation with regard to trophy hunting and its place in africa was uh, quite far off the mark and also how um, photographic tourism and other forms of tourism could compensate by removing trophy hunting. Uh, the one other aspect, and you will hear this later, is there seems to be, and I'm not quite sure why he feels this, that the view of celebrities is important. Uh, I honestly couldn't care less what a celebrity thinks because who are they to make any kind of judgment when they don't have knowledge in a particular area? If they are just a celebrity for you know, whatever it is, whether it be sport or famous for the sake of being famous, which we often have to put up with, or, or comedians like uh, Ricky Gervais um, making statements on things they actually know nothing about. And for some reason, that forms part of the, de the debate from uh, David Harry as to why we should be changing what we do. And I quite honestly couldn't care less what these people think. I think that we should be changing what their perception is if we honestly believe it's correct. So... Uh, he also brings up an interesting thing about the Lynx Trust and this distinction between rewilding Britain and the Lynx Trust. They are not the same entity yeah. at all. In fact, they actually have nothing to do with one another, which, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Daryl, um, because it might be easy to assume that yep. there was a connection there, but there is no connection. The Lynx Trust are doing their own thing. Um, with rewilding. With rewilding yeah. of Lynx. It's got nothing to do with rewilding Britain, and David Valhari was very clear about that. Um, and I, I got the impression from the discussion, and anybody who was there, I'm, I'm sure had the same feeling, is that they don't necessarily agree with a lot of uh, what they're doing or how they're going about it. But that was the impression that we got. He did also say that he would like to actually change the name of rewilding Britain. Yeah, I think you do pick that up a little <laughs> I bit I think later it comes on. in later on. Yeah, he did, which is a good point. Uh, it gets picked up by saying, well, why are you calling it rewilding when really what he, he's uh, really if you if you melt it down as to what he's getting to, it's possibly like a different view of managing land and how we can possibly maximize its potential. That That's really what he's yeah. discussing if you boil it down. So, yeah, you, you will hear that as well. So we kick off here with uh, Jamie Stewart. Um, I can't quite conflict remember what the animal, he was you know, perhaps a wild animal predating on a domesticated species. There was conflict and the animal lost. But that payment was direct to the people, direct to the community, not to ideologically driven areas or organisations. I think that's where we have to be very, very careful. I said status quo. I said we're very good in Scotland at doing things. I mean, David said, surely somewhere in Scotland there's a place where we can have wilderness. You can take 
any amount of any pe you know, people from, from inner cities and point to the wilderness of Scotland. A wee bit of Hill and Glen's famous world over for it, but in actuality, every bit of it is managed by humans. So we have out-evolved our predators, we have moved on in terms of our understanding of conservation, and we have to be very careful how we manage our land in our short timescale. I've seen on television one of our, our most revered conservationists standing uh, uh, with a backdrop of the Cairngorm National Park, and he raised his arm and said, in my lifetime, this has changed. So what? His lifetime, life of a man, 80 years? You know, try an epoch. You know, we, don't, we cannot measure in our own lifetime how landscape has changed. Yes, we can contribute to that and that ongoing demise of a landscape, but I think we're far better versed today than ever before. So I think you know, the indulgence of the Scottish Government and their politics needs to be directly down to community-led initiatives as opposed to ideologically driven organisational debates and discussions. Playing on the fact you're originally from a, a Gaelic-speaking uh, Gaelic uh, community on Sky, Crofter's son, been involved in deer management. How do you see? Do you see any any possibility for communities? This is Alex Doddock. I think up until now there's been precious little talk about the actual people uh, and uh, in the places themselves. Um, what is rewilding? Um, it wasn't until the very end of um, David's um, uh, presentation to us that we found that, uh, that rewilding is natural processes being restored. Well, Rosanna Cunningham, a couple of days ago, said to us that wild land needs to be actively managed by man, and we stand by that. The best managers of that land right now are keepers, stalkers, farmers, and landowners. If you want to conserve land, fine, we think that's regressive. If you want to protect land, I don't support that. I think that's backward. If you want to enhance land, then invest in the people that are currently doing the best job out there. So rewilding the conversation, we're open to it. I, my own view is that we should have a symposium, a high-level panel, where we can all have a chat about the principle, the policy, the ideas behind rewilding. What does it actually mean? Is it flora? Is it fauna? What species are we looking at? The, the high-level principles are important. But in terms of the actual um, conversation, that should be led by communities potentially affected themselves. Another thing that I take issue with was the um, start of the presentation in regards to big game hunting. I'm not entirely sure what the relevance of that was. We don't really have big game hunting here in the UK, and where it exists, in my experience as a travelling hunter abroad, is that the best conservation projects in Africa are often led by hunter conservationists. The resendetra for many of the species, and certainly East and South Africa, is hunting, and that keeps them in that place. And certainly countries that don't have hunting, you can see the decline in, in many of the species. Cecil the lion is not representative of big game hunting anywhere in the world. We know that the canned hunting of cats is unacceptable. We don't support that in principle or practice. And I would not hold that as an example in terms of hunting, sustainable hunting anywhere in the world. So our view, certainly at Saxe, is that hunter conservationism is the future. 
that the discussion should be led by communities, that the people best placed to un undertake the enhancement of the environment are currently the stalkers, the keepers, the recreational shooters, the fishermen, the landowners, the farmers, the crofters themselves. If you can incentivize those people to stay within the communities and create vibrant, sustainable communities, so much the better for the environment itself. One last thing, respect the dignity was raised. Now, dignity comes from having a viable community and having a job in a viable community. I can't see how rewilding does that. Most of the charities that I've been involved with in the past, they're not sustainable. They're dependent on high-level membership subscription, high-level EU grant funding, and high-level UK subsidy. If you are thinking of a future, an enhancement future for the environment within Scotland that includes communities, you have to create jobs. And I'm yet to see a business case for rewilding based on that. Thank you. Um, again, sort of really good points. Can I just clarify the thing about the big five? Um, so sometimes in a presentation, you don't just get Back the clarity Bill, of the Harry. message that you're trying to get across. I guess I'll sort of make a few points. First one is that the big five shows that there is change in society. So that's why I talked about it, that it used to be acceptable to go and shoot those things, and now it's not. It's an example of change. What's interesting about it is, though, that safari tours now market as a tourism thing to go and see and take pictures of the big five. So it's just a, an example of change. That's what it was about. They entirely agree with all the comments, and I hope I've made that clear, that this is about owners working with communities to work out what's best for their future. Um, the other thing is, though, that one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that you know, people are saying that status quo is fine. If you look at the statistics to do with conservation, which are published sort of every 25 years, they don't make good reading. So 70% of species in the uplands monitored over the last 50 years are in decline. I'm not trying to defend that, I'm just saying that's statistics out there. So in terms of looking at what's happening just now, I don't think society is going to allow those declines to continue. They will look to find ways of addressing it. I agree entirely that you've got to find a way that delivers jobs on the ground. Um, yourself, you're just making the point that is there any examples anywhere in the world where this works? I'd be the first to say that, well, there are examples. We're just about to publish and make available to you all examples from around the world of socioeconomic um, examples of where communities derive their living from this. That's not to say that that's transferable to Scotland. So we will try and present the report in a way that allows people to look at it and say, are there any elements of that that could work here? And if there are, let's have a look at it. But let me be absolutely clear. If this doesn't work for landowners and rural communities, I'm with the panel. It won't happen. My point is that I think it can work. And I'd say if it can work, in the absence of the keystone, to just sort of put aside the keystone predator argument, if it can work in the absence of that, why would you not do it? Because if you look at the reasons why you own land, security of land ownership, my argument would be that this will increase security. If you look at power and control, it's going to increase power and control. If you go and try and dine out in London at the moment with celebrities on the red carpet, really it's not, you know, the number of people that you can speak to about sports shooting is going down. If you speak about you're involved in some sort of conservation movement in whatever country in the world, celebrities like that. So again, it's changing. So status is another measure. In terms of investment and profit to economic models, then I'd say, well, rewilding competes favorably. And the final one, which is important to most people in the room and to myself, is hunting. Hunting still exists within a rewilding model. 
So as you don't have keystone spaces, somebody's going to have to control your angulates. Even if you had keystone spaces, even if you had them, then you still have opportunities for hunting. So I kind of, um, what I'm sort of pleading with you is to say, don't close the door on it. It's like there are lots of interesting discussions to be had, but also don't be diverted by keystone species arguments of links or wolves coming back. And uh, I'm very strongly supportive of a community-led approach. I think that that reinforces what I just previously said earlier. There were the two aspects there, uh, focusing on Africa, where um, David discusses the fact that it is now not necessarily uh, particularly uh, tasteful to discuss big game hunting. That doesn't mean that that view is right. In fact, we, we talk about it a lot on this show, and I think the stance that we should be taking is we need to educate to make people understand that big game hunting is actually a vital part of the sustainability of those species, whereas he kind of sweeps past that there. Talking about photographic um, safaris on top of that, well, that's actually nothing new. That's been done for a very long time. And in fact, a lot of the, the companies that have recently opened up photographic safaris where there used to be hunting concessions is only because they've been closed down. Um, Botswana is a good example. Kenya is the example from back in the 1970s. And uh, certainly Kenya has failed miserably and Botswana looks like it's going the same way with hunting being closed down. So I think that was a fairly poor example to bring into a debate on rewilding because uh, it fails on pretty much every account. And the celebrity thing. Honestly, who actually cares what they have to say? I mean, we're talking celebrities in general here. Uh, do I care that Joey Essex doesn't doesn't like Who's Joey us? Essex? Though? Exactly. <laughs> uh, us talking about hunting? No. Uh, who cares? Well, I suppose the problem is that a lot of the a large section of society actually put weight in what celebrities say, even if they have no knowledge of the subject, and that's and, the and that's the problem. But should should um, but I don't think conservation no. efforts should be hindered. The fact that someone that has never probably stepped in that country has only seen a news report, and because they have a little bit of weight behind them, um, should Makes we actually point. listen to them? Yeah. Yeah. Ricky Gervais, uh, prime wor example. Worrying about your status within those circles because of what you think, even if you are right. Again, I don't really see where that fits into anything. If you strongly believe something, irrespective of how that fits within those social circles, that should actually be irrelevant if it's with it for the greater good of uh, conservation, management, and wildlife. And just lastly, before we, we pick up again, I think that there was a distinction drawn there between conservationists and hunters, whereas we're always big proponents to say that uh, you know hunters are some of the greatest conservationists and if you are a hunter whether you realize it or not assuming that uh, you are a, an ethical hunter which most people are you're actually a conservationist whether you thought thank you david uh, in, in my mind one of the issues you mentioned about species decline in in, in uplands and i'll be interested to hear exactly which species you're referring to but Again, from the, the, the studies that uh, Game Conservancy have produced and others, it seems to be very clear that a lot of the upland species, your likes of your golden plover and uh, your, your curlew, are, are far better off under the protection of, of managed shooting ground. And in the UK, the, the amount of hours put into conservation work, I mean, shooting controls more acres of, of, of ground than any conservation group put together. It's equivalent of 16,000 full-time equivalents working in conservation. Do you agree that shooting is a vital part of that mix? 
so I, I, I've been really fortunate in the sense of a chance to travel to different parts of the world where there's been less interference, whether it's in the high Arctic or whether it's in Back the Amazon. And you know, there, there, those ecosystems exist. It's not abandoned land. It's the way the land has always been. There are indigenous peoples hunting off that land, and they always have done. And we value those lands as some of the most biodiverse, biodiverse and rich places on the planet. So that's at one end of the, the spectrum. The problem is when you bring all that back into Scotland, then yes, you can manage. You can manage here. If you graze grassland heavily, you will get a greater diversity of your flowers. That's just what happens. So the harder you manage land, the more diversity that you can create. And that's a challenge for the whole way that conservation works in this country. And that's the choice. That's why it's the paradigm shift. Are you going to say that, look, it's maximizing the number of things and managing, and you could do better? So if, if, the, if it's curlews or whatever, I'm saying that from a conservation perspective, if you are hell-bent on managing for diversity of species, of course you could manage it and get more. On the other hand, if you let it go and you let natural succession go through, it will go through stages of being very biodiverse, and then it will go to monocultures. And then if you have perturbation, whether it's through fire or disturbance through wild boar or whatever, that's how ecosystems work. And the argument is, this goes back to a really simple point, is do we have any space in Scotland where that wants to happen? And I guess I'd sort of go back to the very start and say is that you know, this post is, is landowner-led. There are landowners out there who own significant areas of land in Scotland who actually see this as something that they're really interested in. And the point that we're making is, well, if they combine with the rural communities and jointly they see a very positive future for themselves, then that's a good thing. This is George Milne, uh, Scottish Regional Development Officer for the National Sheep Association. You will hear him in a second when he actually picks up the microphone that he's being handed here. Thirty years ago, we had a very good countryside. And the reason for that is because generations before us had farmed it in a natural way. They knew how many sheep they could run on the hill. Gamekeepers knew how to control the place. And uh, we planted trees where we wanted to plant trees. Another point that was brought up. Now, the last 30 years, we've had various subsidies and schemes that have altered the way that was, con that was carried out in the previous generations. So we've had schemes that encouraged higher sheep production. We got overgrazing. We've had to go back from that. We've had schemes to try and protect birds, certain types. We've had schemes to protect the wildflowers. And we've all been paid for them. And in a lot of cases, they've actually not delivered what they were aimed to deliver. So I would suggest a lot of the grants and schemes that have come out over and above a basic payment to maintain farming the way it should be in the hills and uplands has actually reduced these species. So if we all admit that, then we need to sit down and work out what we're going to do forward. And someone mentioned the word steward, I think it was. Now, uh, I'm too far from my notes. The um, nature, was some comment you said, where's that top page? <laughs> Sorry about that. It was a really good statement. Give nature a chance to build. And I think we would all support that. 
And it's about getting a balance. And maybe what we had 30 years ago was the correct balance. But giving a nature, nature a chance to build does not mean going abroad and catching species that we don't have, bringing them here and trying to reintroduce them, as happened with sea eagles, to the detriment of the sheep industry, the golden eagle, and all other sort of birds and things. You know, we're, the more you try, sometimes the less you deliver. I think that probably sums up where I'm in. Oh, one last thing. <laughs> and I'm going to mention this because I have to. And it's about the welfare of the sheep industry. And, you know, we try our hardest to keep sheep alive. And we try our hardest to make sure they're raised to high welfare standards. We're all inspected on an annual basis. And yet we have to live with things like seagulls, Ravens, okay, we have a license that we can vaguely control ravens. It's slightly difficult to get. But we can't go out and shoot a raven when it's busy eating a live sheep that happens to have got caught on its back. And to me, that is serious welfare issues on the sheep industry. So any other wee wilding that comes in that involves animals like lynx and wolves, no one gives a damn about the welfare of sheep. As, as long as we can have people in the countryside that want to come and see these animals, they don't have to live with them. They just want them so they can come and try and see them. It's farmers and landkeepers and um, estate owners and uh, gamekeepers that have to live with the consequences. So maybe the one thing we've come out of today, I would say, is rewilding to me is not a good way forward. We maybe should be looking at nature a, chain, a chance to build it, that would be a better topic. I was, I was just about Very to bring, bring you into it, Stuart. And, uh, um, that is why uh, his bearing in mind the audience today, the I mean, one of the things about today yeah. is the fact that most people in the room represent landowner interests. How do, you, how, how do you address that? I mean, are there ways you can get the two to coexist? This is Stuart Buick, uh, sorry, Stuart my first statement from really, the John that I think Trust a lot of the CEO. tension around rewilding is within the conservation movement rather than necessarily in uh, other sectors of land management. Um, so uh, one thing that I don't think is coming across, and David has mentioned it at least four times, I think, is that this isn't about um, taking an ideology and forcing it onto anybody across large parts of Scotland. This is about beginning a debate to say, are there some places where this could happen? And you know, that has to happen with public support. And there's a, a discussion, I'm sure, that is, is going to happen in terms of those land management payments about how much the public are prepared to, to, to uh, support this financially. But a community would need to embrace it and need to see the opportunity and the benefit. Um, I, I don't think anybody's arguing against that. So it, I, I do feel that we're kind of setting off on a kind of a binary discussion here, um, that one approach is better than the other. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think there are places that are likely to be more appropriate to take this approach than others. And there are places that are likely, um, I think, to uh, be best used in, in other ways, such as sheep farming. 
just to, to reiterate, uh, we're back to Project Zoo. So if there are other places in Scotland where Jamie this can happen, absolutely. Scotland, as I said earlier, has got some wonderful uh, open landscapes and habitat that could support a various uh, uh, biodiversity of uh, predators and, and prey, uh, but is it somewhere where we see a fragmented nature of management, something that's an isolated, perhaps uh, managed to the detriment of its neighbours? Uh, we've seen most recently the, the John Muir Trust having a, a quite a proactive culling programme of deer, which was detrimental to their neighbours. So was that community engagement? Was that public spirited? Uh, was that ideologically managed landscape? So I think it, it, ultimately... Uh, David should take back a message that it needs to change the, the, the name of the project from rewilding to game and wildlife management. Yeah, I kind of, I, um, I spent the first six weeks in my job trying to change the name. And the, <laughs> I can assure you it was the... David Balhari <laughs> talking again. And I didn't succeed. And I guess what I've got to is that um, if we can carve out a brand in Scotland that tries to sort of say, well, look, forget about the name, but just whatever this brand is, uh, just be aware it's about taking forward a conversation within the parameters I've been speaking about today. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on. There's, there's so much to speak about. I think we just only touched the surface on all the debates. The... Um, you were up speaking a second ago and you were sort of saying, well, maybe go back 30 years. I don't think it's about going back 30 years. It's just about saying, well, let's learn from the past. And there were bad points in history and there are some good things in history. Let's use all that information to work out how we go forward. Um, the policies of the past are horrendous. I mean, whether it's scheduled tax relief or heritage payments on sheep, it's just littered. History is littered with huge examples of just horrendous policies. Um, but if you look at all the trajectories going forward, I kind of think I haven't heard anything today that's different to what do we want? We want people employed in rural areas. We want stable and secure economies. And if there's an opportunity to do that around wildlife tourism and uh, different types of whether it's renewable energies, these are all good things. And I think people should feel challenged by it. And the interesting thing is that in terms of, Rory, you set this up. And all through this conversation, there are, there are like, um, what do you call it? There's powder keg moments where you could challenge things. And for me, it's like, uh, I'm hoping speaking to an audience that kind of is aware of what living in a rural environment is about. And, you know, you're saying about wolves, and that's a powder keg moment in terms of wolves kill people. Yeah, bears kill people. Lots of things kill people. 17 people in North America died last year because furniture fell on them. It's like, you know, get a grip on the risk of, of, of these things. I'm not interested in wolves coming. I genuinely don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. My point is, it's like, let's debate with brutal honesty, the point that um, Andrew's making, um, what the issues are. Let's not be shy to talk about what the issues are. Let's not try and pander to the public and try and get sort of clamoured support. But let's actually explore the debate. If it doesn't work, I'll be the first to say, why would you want to do it? I, thank you. I wasn't um, on this idea about um, honesty and whether we can get it to work. I think that's again we're, we're Andrew polarizing Gilruth, it into GWCT. a binary thing about will it work, won't it work. Uh, there are people here today that have spent the last 20, 30, 60 years actually getting it to work. Uh, the introduction of conservation headlands, the, the, the people that have reintroduced grey partridges, um, we've got black grouse recovery projects. 
Um, there are all sorts of organisations which have done other things as well and, and have made huge strides. And, and to try to paint this as um, something entirely different and new, I think, is wrong. This is a spectrum of, of conservation. And there's a tendency to focus on the one end, which is the, the glamorous end about lynx and wolves and things, which is getting some media attention, when actually we need to start at the other end, which is all about the insects on the ground um, and actually the beginning of the food chain. And when you've got all of that right, then you can start talking about possibly reintroducing the, the, more, the more major uh, or apex predators. There's also a failure really to discuss uh, the management of the, of the meso-predators, the, the middle predators. Because if they are uh, generalist predators in the middle, they have a huge advantage and it can operate at the debt, the balance is at the detriment of the prey species. And if you were just to take the fox alone, um, it's estimated that in order to maintain the UK fox population at its current level, um, you have to remove about 240,000 foxes a year. Now, the cars help with that because the first 100,000 are removed by cars. But actually, the next, if you like, chunk has you know, the percentage it will naturally die, um, and then there's a percentage which actually have to be removed. But there's no one being honest about this, about the, the level of work which has to be done in the absence of these apex predators to be able to control the populations. And I think there are a lot of people that would feel more comfortable if there was a more honest recognition of the work that the gamekeepers are doing about trying to maintain the balance in the absence of the apex predators until they return. Um, I'm just conscious of time, so we're probably going to have to wrap it up reasonably soon. But I thought looking at the, the, the makeup of the board, and there's obviously a, a, a strong field sports uh, leaning can rewilding projects, as they exist at present, you know, the, the likes of what John Muir Trust is doing, if it extends to wider um, bases across Scotland, it seems to be very sort of polarised between the rewilding um, and uh, almost a slight animal rights leading to it, and to actually the idea of, of public immunity of hunting ground that they have across across the rest of Europe and North America. Um, I'll ask a, a few of you in turn whether you see the the, the two coexisting in the one model. My view in this one is, is well documented. Um, I see a balance uh, between the American-European model of hunting Alex and what we have here. Um, if you are going to hunt by permit with greater access for local people to hunt on the hill with shotgun or rifle or, or fishing rod, then my view is you need to have gamekeepers on the ground or wardens on the ground to actually make sure that that's done sustainably. Much of the hunting I've seen by permit around the world has not been sustainable. It's been driven by trophy, driven by opportunity, and that's something that is not um, correct management of, of these species. So if we can bring the best of what we currently have and make it accessible to more people and make field sports more socially acceptable for a generation, generations that are further and further removed from the countryside, never mind hunting and fishing and shooting, we have people out there that don't actually understand anything about farming and where the food comes from. We meet them every week. But the, if you can make that more socially acceptable and make hunting, shooting, fishing more accessible to the many, I think that we can protect the uplands, protect the lowlands, protect our biodiversity a great deal more. And it goes back to whether it's conservation, is it preservation, or is it enhancement? My view is enhancement. We, we have to go forward. 
and that going forward is together. So you know, I'm thankful to have the, the conversation here with David, and it's good to have Stuart here too. We support many of the things that they are talking about in principle. It's, it's heading in the right direction. I just think that we tend to get a little bit lost in some of the um, politicized arguments, some of the um, single species uh, fo uh, focus, and it's time to actually broaden that discussion and talk about the practices, the principles at a higher level and I think we can actually take this forward. But we need people back in the glens. I come from Sky, and the community that I currently um, come from is populated by holiday makers. At winter time, the houses are empty. There's only three or four houses that still have people in them out of about 124. So that's sad. In order to repopulate the highlands in a sensible way, in a sustainable way, you have to create jobs and opportunities for, for, for work and good living. I can't see how rewilding will do that. If you're going to have rewilding as a way of choosing a select number of areas, letter U or Noida, whatever, and saying, right, we'll just leave it be and see what happens after that, I think that's wrong. We have to look at new ways of primary employment, be it gamekeeping, be it agriculture production, be it fishing. And as we go forward, we all know that food sustainability in Scotland and Europe is going to be a major issue for many of us. We haven't got the issues here of water yet, but food is going to be a major issue. And I'm not long out of a conversation with a professor from Oxford University in population dynamics whose response in terms of the future and how we're going to cope with lack of food and population increases, I quite honestly, Alex, I don't know. I think we're in trouble. So the conversation that we have in the future isn't so much about everything else apart from humans. It's about humans as apex predators doing the very best for our environment, but also making sure that we can sustain ourselves. Well said, Alex. I think I would argue very strongly that uh, rewilding, as I said earlier, is a misnomer. It's the wrong title for the project. Uh, we are doing, we are managing most of the objectives uh, with the, I suppose, with the obvious absence of some of the apex predators. Uh, we, uh, as, as individuals, as, as collectives, we manage the greatest track of our, our wee bit hill and glen to the best of our, our, our abilities. We are hampered uh, mostly by restrictions on protection to other species. There are some species that are sacrosanct. It was mentioned earlier about the impact that ravens have in, in the agricultural industry. Uh, and ha having had worked for SNH, I worked in an office that issued uh, licenses, and it would be a, almost a straw poll. You know, how many will allow you to kill as opposed to will we let you address the problem? So we need to, to, to work hard, and most of us uh, on the panel and in the room are, are the, working towards uh, a, a generalised engagement with a new government to try and make that happen. Uh, we have never been uh, in such a volatile position in, in the EU, but let alone Scotland. You know, Scotland, in terms of our land reform and land reform commitments from the Scottish Government, can only be detrimental to the long-term gain of rewilding. If you allow uh, the, the removal of the, the, the status quo and to allow it to change into the fragmented nature of the Scottish Government's aims and objectives, we'll see a great uh, deterioration in our, in our wildlife and our, in our wild places. So I would, uh, I would urge David to, to go back and try very hard to get him to change the title uh, and to work more closely, it seems he is working close with landowners, but work more closely with landowners and gamekeepers to, to understand the great depth and, and breadth of, of knowledge that's out there. I used to describe myself as a, as a dangerous man. I was a gamekeeper with a degree. Uh, I, could, I could tell you what I did and I can explain in scientific terms what it meant. David's got a PhD, he's some way ahead of me, so he's got the ability to converse with politicians to, to help them understand what we do in a, in a, in a more productive format.
clearly I'm going to say that I think there is lots of opportunity. I think there's... Uh, um, I don't see these two concepts of, of rewilding and land management in the traditional sense as being diametrically opposed at all. Um, I think there's opportunities to focus um, in certain areas, and I think that's probably one thing that Scotland hasn't done adequately. It's not taken a spatial approach to planning in the sense that there are certain opportunities that I think are, are better focused and our resources are going to be limited. Um, certainly if we're looking at applying public funding um, to supporting different land management activities, I think those land management activities need to be, um, need to be uh, prioritised in, in certain areas uh, above others. Now that's a real challenge because um, who owns the land currently and, and who, has, uh, who manages the land currently um, might not necessarily kind of have the same objectives. So th that is a real, I mean, that's a, just a genuine practical difficulty. And I suppose we're all involved in planning in, on an individual uh, property basis, but also on a collective and sometimes a landscape basis. And some of these discussions, I think, have to happen there. Um, I mentioned earlier on that there is a, um, a debate about to happen around the development of a new vision for the uplands of Scotland. And um, I think this is the opportunity for us to integrate this discussion across all of the land uses in the uplands. And uh, I would hope, and I, I think this has been a respectful and uh, considered discussion, and I kind of hope that can continue within the development of that vision. Because if there's possibly something that's been slightly missing around this discussion is what are we aiming for? What, what is that vision? Um, I think it's been clear that we all think that it's important that people are uh, an integral part of that discussion and the economy of uh, the rural economy and community livelihoods are part of that discussion. But I also think there needs to be an articulation of the vision for the land and uh, I'd welcome that. Thank you. I'll just go back to uh, my, my opening uh, comments about um, this is all fine and we're all trying to achieve the same thing, but we have to agree that we have to no, properly investigate. That wasn't Andrew Gilruth. This is We've Andrew got to Gilruth. agree that we actually need to manage and we have to have much more honesty about the impacts. It is not possible to introduce change where everybody and everything is a winner. And if we carry on not investigating and just releasing things in the hope that we can make things better and it will probably be a good thing, if we deny that we actually need to manage things and we're not honest about it, we will end up with the same reaction we have with the EU referendum. We'll end up with the wrong solution. Uh, thank you. Um, well, my view on this is that basically I believe land in Scotland is scarce. It's Back under threat Milne. from a lot of things, but particularly I can name a few tree planting targets they require a huge area of land to meet Scottish Government tree planting targets. And if, if my figures are right, I think we're about 13,000 13, hectares behind on that at the moment. We have food and drink targets that require food production. And we have energy targets that require turbines. When you start putting turbines up, they take up a big chunk of the hills and the uplands. We have climate change targets, which are definitely going to have an impact on farming and the countryside going forward. We have housing targets, so we need more land taken up by housing. 
everyone needs more land or every sector needs more land in Scotland. So our land is under pressure from all sectors. And again, it's back to what I said earlier. We need a balance and we need to keep that balance going forward. In my view, we have a fantastic countryside. It's the envy of about every other country in the world. That's why so many people come to Scotland to see our hills, our uplands, and the way we maintain it. Uh, so, finally, it's just about balance, and we need to live, and we need to work, and we need to maintain it and keep it. Okay, so the, um, I just like to make two things. One, a comment on skill sets, and the other one, a comment on rights. So, on skill sets, one of the things is that if you look at Highland Stalker and you say, what's his uh, key skill set? And people think, well, it's the ability to take a guest in to shoot a stag or whatever. And I have to say, well, it's been a big part of my life, and that's not the way that I'd characterize their skill sets at all. I think with the, the, the true skill set of a Highland Stalker is somebody that can take a guest out in the hill, in the midges, in the rain for eight hours, and entertain them and the shooting of the stag at the end of that is a very small part. That skill set is still required, it'll always be required in Scotland, and that's the most marketable skill set that we've got. Um, so that's on the skill set. In terms of, I think what this debate boils down to is that there are, there are representative bodies, there's interest groups, there's politicians, there's people like me, and we're all individuals, but the bottom line is that land is owned by people, and those people have rights. And they're funding this work just now. And a key part of that is that, look, and it's agreeing with everything the panel said, is that there is something here to explore, whatever you call it. The, main, the name might not be right, but it doesn't change the concept. So let's explore it. Let's look at its implications and its practical applications. And then once we've done all that, and once we're sort of saying, well, let's then expose that to really critical thinking. And if we come out the other end and say, you know what, that might be worth just putting our toe in the water and just taking it gently, I'd say, well, why not? It's an option. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very conscious of time, so uh, I, I think we, we will have to wrap it up there. But I, I think you'll all agree it's been a, a very vigorous discussion, and hopefully I think it's been balanced as well. And we've heard from both sides, and I think there are areas of overlap. Um, and I think it, it's, it's a journey that uh, will we'll probably be going on probably once everyone in this room has, 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 has long passed on. But I think it's, it's, it's a sign of the way things are going. There's the example of the Moulin Forum where various members of the room um, engaging whether they're part of NGOs or whether they are lobby groups. Or well, I would say that's probably one of the most varied debates we've brought you. It certainly had the most people in it yep. and uh, the most variety of ideas, concepts and a subject in itself which we will most definitely be revisiting and something which we see in the newspapers every fortnight pretty much. It is a hot topic right now. And uh, once again, apologies for slightly disjointed, yeah. <laughs> nothing to do with us whatsoever, because if it was in control of us, we would have actually made sure that everything was working beforehand. The fuel was, the in, fuel the generator. was in the generator, and which is quite critical. And uh, apologies for yeah. the bad audio for one of the guests. Once again, no nothing to do with us. We couldn't actually control that. He was just speaking so loud that it was cutting out all the microphones.
yeah through the through the PA system yeah. so we've done our best but uh, a, cu- a couple of bits of that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable if you've got headphones in so apologies <laughs> for that it's not our our usual standard of, uh, of high quality audio but uh, it was unavoidable in this particular situation we have another competition for you we do and this week I can't show you if you're watching on YouTube because we don't have it here but I can tell you what it is it is a Caldwell front shooting rest so if you are into shooting, which a lot of our listeners are, then it's uh, a great addition to your uh, range kit bag. And we will put some pictures up as soon as it arrives. In fact, I think it's due to arrive today. Um, so as soon as we get that... We'll but don't worry, it'll be here in page. time for the next podcast. So. <laughs> it will. So if you want to win a Coldwell front shooting rest, all you have to do is enter the competition. And we haven't actually thought, how are you going to enter? But I'm well, think, if I look on Daryl's face, he's worked out how you need to enter. There has been a very popular one. I think we'll do it again. We're going to do tag a person in the post that we put up. Okay, yeah. So this is going to be a Facebook one. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully most of you are on Facebook. If you're not, find somebody who is. The uh, pinned post will be this podcast. Tag somebody in it. Tag a friend. Tag Simple. one friend in it. And then you'll be in a chance to win. Yeah, and you can win a shooting rest from Caldwell. Well, I think that is it for today. We've covered a huge amount and join us in two weeks' time. I have, I know that Josh James, who was a very, very popular guest of ours, is going to come on in a few weeks. I'm not entirely sure. He has, He's a very busy man. He's got a Discovery show. He's got his YouTube channel. He has a huge amount on, but we're going to be discussing specifically 1080 poison which is going on right now in new zealand they're currently systematically wiping out their population population of everything it is actually for targeting uh species uh well uh, small predators small predators but it has no target it just targets everything uh josh was covering it the other day he was taking uh, some video of the eight helicopters that were literally dumping tons and tons of tenet eight poison uh, into the forest probably the biggest wildlife wildlife travesty happening in our in our lifetime right it may seem strange to say this but that is right up there with the rhino poaching and the the ivory poaching going on in africa and you know what it's even state sponsored it's quite disgusting we're going to get josh james on to talk about that because he is a man in the know and uh, our listeners like him. <laughs> We've also going to have uh, Sean Conway on, the man who just completed a triathlon of Great Britain. Hang on. Not only that, the world's longest yes. triathlon. He's also the only man to swim the entire length of Great Britain. He has also cycled around the entire planet. So he, he is just <laughs> a seriously hardcore cool dude who we met maybe two months ago now. It was a while ago, not yeah. very far from our office here where we record this. Uh, we asked him at the time if he'd come on the podcast. We pinged him a message the other day, and he said he would. So hopefully next week we will be recording with him. Yep. And well, like, we can't tell you anymore, guys. No, that's, that's far too much no, for, can't, uh, for one can't, podcast. Can't tell you anymore. We have some exciting projects coming up in the, the future. Me and Byron are heading off to Norway very soon to be filming a few different projects. We're going to give you some more information on that in the coming weeks. We will. If you haven't seen our episode four of Into the Wilderness, it is it. out. On YouTube, and there's a lot of films coming out right now uh, with all the the Merlin groups uh, from our company, Pace Productions UK. So check out all those films. And we also have to g- give a shout out to Field Sports Channel. Oh, of course, who yeah. have just produced uh, probably one of the best 
films, certainly for grouse shooting, maybe shooting full stop um, ever made. It's been made in a, in a brilliant way, uh, a very documentary style. If you anybody saw, I think it was called Wild Scotland. It was the BBC documentary that was made with the, uh, uh, the narration was Ewan McGregor. If anyone saw that, it is basically a shooting version of that and anybody could watch it and appreciate it, whether you know anything about hunting or you care about it or not. It is just brilliant. And uh, David David Wright, who who filmed and put that together for Field Sports Channel, did a superb job. I was on the phone to him this morning. I do have to put a little plug in for ourselves and particularly my brother. I'm, I'm the, not saying it's that amazing just no, because I'm, I filmed. I'm going to say it for you. I'm okay, going to say thanks, it for you. Thanks. Uh, so our company, Pace Productions UK, provided the and Daryl did all the filming because I wasn't there. The first couple of minutes of the the actual film that a whole, that a whole part made. of a season. Yes, the whole part of a season, which was all the heather burning at the start and the interviews. Uh, we actually filmed, but we we didn't edit. David did that. Eden Eden was my uh, he was my help for the day. Eden Anand. Yeah, who's in New Zealand? In, well, I think he's in Fiji now. Yes, he, <laughs> uh, he he was my help for the day. So thank you, Eden, for helping me for not really doing that much. But he did. He was there. <laughs> <laughs> he was there. Apparently, he was in it as well. Though I never spotted him. He was beating. Oh, was he? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that's join it. us. Join us in two weeks. Download us. iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, SoundCloud. Tell your friends about the show. Keep leaving us reviews. Someone actually just left us a new review yesterday. Thank you very much. I'll give you a shout out in two weeks' time when uh, I've actually got it up on my phone. This podcast is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Uh, without the support, we wouldn't be able to bring you this. So a big thank you to them. Go check them out if you don't know uh, exactly what they're about. We have, well, in fact listen back to this podcast because the director of sax he's Alex on it. Stoddart, he was one of the panelists so that will give you a flavor of uh, of the kind of people who run that organization